to amplify the podcast corollary to EB Medicine's emergency medicine practice. I'm Jeff Nussbaum, and this month we're changing things up a little bit. While the current issue of emergency medicine practice is on air travel emergencies, something near and dear to my heart, we're delaying takeoff on that topic see what I did there, until another day. Today, we're going to focus on concussion management in the emergency department. And this month, all of our subscribers received an extra issue of emergency medicine practice, which also comes with four extra trauma CME credits. The author of the article is Dr. Susan Kirilik, a concussion specialist who's also a medical director at the Rocky Mountain Pediatric Ortho One Center for Concussion in Denver, Colorado. Dr. Kirilik discusses the current guidelines for concussion management in the ED. We hope you enjoy this special episode. Hi, my name is Sue Karelik. I am a pediatric emergency physician at the Rocky Mountain Hospital for Children in Denver, and I'm also the medical director of the Rocky Mountain Center for Concussion and a concussion specialist. I'm going to talk a little bit about concussion from the perspective of the emergency medicine provider. Uh, This is a really good time to talk about this because we had a new consensus guideline published in the spring of 2017. Uh, About every four years, there is a, a group of experts that meets typically in Europe. Most recently, they met in Berlin to discuss the recent research on concussion in sport. Um, The guideline is the Consensus Statement on Concussion in Sport, the fifth international conference on concussion in sport held in Berlin, October 2016. That's the title of the article. While they talk mostly about concussion in sport, there really are principles that apply to concussion from any mechanism of injury. So let's talk a little bit first about what is a concussion. It's um, a very complex process. There is some controversy as to the definition of a concussion. Uh, There's been a lot of work by um, Giza and Havda at UCLA and a number of other researchers that have really elucidated the neurometabolic changes that occur with a concussion. It's a very complex process. Basically, it's biomechanical forces that cause a neurometabolic cascade, which result in symptoms of concussion. I'm not going to get into the details of the neurometabolic cascade at this point, but understand that it's really a um, microscopic change, not a gross structural change. When we talk about concussion diagnosis, it's really a clinical diagnosis at this point. Uh, It's diagnosed um, based on signs and symptoms that occur after trauma, either directly uh, to the head or to the body that could cause trauma to the brain. The typical signs and symptoms of a concussion are rather nonspecific, and, and that's why we really need to keep a differential diagnosis in mind when we're evaluating a patient with a suspected concussion. Um, typically, the signs and symptoms are categorized into physical symptoms, cognitive symptoms, emotional symptoms, and sleep energy symptoms. So physically, a lot of patients will experience headache, but headache is not universal. Um, dizziness, blurry vision, balance changes, sometimes nausea, vomiting, distal numbness or tingling, light or noise sensitivity, uh, cognitive symptoms. Patients often report feeling that they're in a mental fog, feeling slowed down, having trouble remembering things. They might have slowed speech. They might feel easily confused. Uh, Emotionally, they might have inappropriate emotions later in their concussion recovery. Anxiety, depressive symptoms might develop. Um, And sleep energy. Early on, these patients are um, very fatigued and have increased sleep. Later in the course of recovery, often they have difficulty falling asleep at night um, and sleep challenges. 
How do we diagnose a concussion? Uh, as I said, it's really clinical right now. We have no objective measures of concussion. There's a lot of research being done in this area. Um, biomarkers, either serum, CSF, or maybe even saliva biomarkers might be something that we can measure sometime, at some point down the road. Uh, advanced imaging techniques, such as MRI spectroscopy or diffusion tensor imaging is something that might be useful sometime down the road. Um, or eye tracking technology. There's a lot of work being done to look at how the eyes move when you have a concussion or a brain injury. Right now, these are all just research tools and we can't use them clinically. Uh, so the concussion diagnosis is really a subjective diagnosis. Um, it's important to know that symptoms can vary person to person. So not everybody will have the same constellation of symptoms. It's important to educate uh, patients and parents that loss of consciousness occurs extremely rarely. Um, one article showed maybe 2.5% of sports-related concussions have a loss of consciousness, and there are a lot of lay people out there that still think you have to have an LLC to have had a concussion. So how do we evaluate a concussion once we have a patient in the emergency department? Um, so the approach to a patient with a head injury, uh, we have to remember that these are basically trauma patients and we start with our ATLS approach and our um, evaluation and stabilization for a potentially life-threatening injury. Once you've uh, determined that there is no potential life-threatening injury that you need to intervene upon immediately, um, then we look at these patients to determine whether neuroimaging is indicated. And in the ED setting, really, head CT is what we're talking about acutely um, within the first 24, 48 hours of an injury. Um, with a, the pediatric population, um, often we'll use the PCARN rule, P-E-C-A-R-N. Uh, that was a, um, a very large multicenter trial that looked at factors to identify kids at low risk for intracranial injury. Um, and we can use that decision rule to help identify kids that we can confidently not CT. Um, or kids that have indicators that would suggest intracranial injury who require a CT. I'm not going to get into the details of that rule. That's a different um, topic, but um, it's important to know that for kids who kind of fall out in the middle, you can't rule out intracranial injury clinically or you don't suspect intracranial injury based on severe criteria. Uh, those are kids that we might be able to observe in the emergency department to see what direction they're going in order to avoid radiation uh, from a head CT. Um, the Canadian CT rule is typically used in adult patients. So once we've looked at the patient and we've decided uh, either they have a negative CT or we've decided that they don't need a head CT, um, then we can kind of move on to taking our time with concussion evaluation um, in the emergency department. Um, when we evaluate these patients, a really good history and physical exam is important, looking at the mechanism of injury, looking at the signs and symptoms at the time of injury, how have things evolved, um, until they've presented into the emergency department. You know, bystanders are really useful in um, identifying signs that might have been evident on the field. A detailed neurologic exam is um, very important. Uh, in our concussion patients, um, an important component of the exam is looking at vestibular and oculomotor function. Um, now that is something that a lot of emergency medicine providers perhaps don't have uh, a lot of experience with. 
Um, there's a really good tool that you can use um, called the VOMS, V-O-M-S, that gives you details on how to do a vestibular and oculomotor screen. It was published in an article by Ann Mucha in the Journal of Sports Medicine in October of 2014. It gives uh, details of the vestibular and oculomotor exam, including something called smooth pursuit, where you look at how their eyes glide when they're following an object, um, saccade testing, how quickly their eyes can move from an object to an object, uh, measuring their near point convergence, the point at which their vision goes double or their eye deviates, and then looking at vestibular ocular reflex testing, their ability to stabilize their gaze. Um, if you uh, pull up the tool, you can actually even Google VOMS concussion, and it comes up with the tool. Uh, you measure symptoms at baseline, and then you measure symptoms with this testing, and it can give you a score that can help you identify whether or not they have vestibular inoculomotor findings, which would suggest that they have a concussive injury. That exam is really helpful if you have a kid who had a significant mechanism of injury, and perhaps you're concerned they're not being quite straightforward about reporting their symptoms, a very motivated athlete who maybe does not want to be held out of a game. Um, it can be very helpful to do this provocative testing and see if they develop symptoms or if they look like they're developing symptoms. You can also use some balance testing um, to identify a potentially concussed patient. Now, if if I have a kid who's you know, vomiting into a bucket after their head injury, I don't do the bombs immediately in the emergency department because, quite honestly, I know the diagnosis at that point and um, I don't need further testing to elucidate that. Of course, I'm still doing detailed neurologic exam to look for a cranial nerve palsy or another concerning finding that might push me towards a CT scan. Um, but that VOMS tool can be really helpful if you have someone who um, you think maybe isn't being straightforward or the diagnosis isn't clear. Um, there uh, is also a neurocognitive tool that you can use called the SCAT, S-C-A-T, or the SCAT, Child SCAT 5, uh, again, S-C-A-T number 5. You can Google both of those. Um, those are tools that have been updated with each consensus statement that has things like mini mental status testing, um, symptom scores uh, to help um, elucidate the diagnosis within the first 24 to 48 hours after the injury. Let's talk a little bit about how to treat these patients in the emergency department once we've made the diagnosis of a concussion. Um, in the acute injury um, setting, rest is really our friend. So allowing these kids to go to sleep, using antiemetics and typically non-narcotic pain medications um, can really help. If we have a kid who's still hugely symptomatic, we might allow them to sleep for a period of time in the ED, uh, periodic neuro checks and see if symptoms uh, improve so that we can feel confident when discharging them. Really, that is all we have to offer in the emergency department as far as treating these uh, concussive symptoms. A real paradigm shift for us in the emergency department is thinking about these patients more long-term, and that comes in when we're giving aftercare instructions. I think it's really helpful to have an understanding of how these um, symptoms might evolve, the time frame of recovery in a typical patient, and how we need to educate these patients upon discharge from the emergency department. Um, so when I discharge a kid from the emergency department, one of the most important things I need to talk to them about are the risks of re-injury before their concussion is resolved. There are some really good rodent studies that have shown us there is a period of metabolic vulnerability 
as long as the sprain is in a metabolic crisis, it does not take much of a re-injury to make things significantly worse. We're concerned about second impact syndrome. The theory there is that you're in this period of metabolic vulnerability, you have a second hit, and you have massive cerebral edema, which can be life-threatening. Now, that diagnosis is controversial. Not everybody agrees that it's an entity. It's exceedingly rare. By far more common are kids who continue to play with symptoms, have another hit, and then they have a very prolonged recovery uh, because of that re-injury. So we really need to talk to patients about the importance of a follow-up evaluation after their discharge from the emergency department. We don't want to be prescriptive about clearance. Don't write them a note saying stay out two weeks and then you're probably good to go back to sports because you cannot predict when that patient is going to recover from their concussion. And you need to have a reevaluation to make sure the concussion is in fact resolved before they're cleared to return to sports. It's also important to talk to them about what to do for their recovery, what kinds of activities might benefit their recovery. So early on in the recovery, first 24 to 48 hours, we really want these patients resting uh, as much as they need to rest. We no longer cocoon patients with concussions. So it used to be we would prescribe laying in a dark room 24-7 until they're entirely symptom-free. We have found that that um, does not benefit recovery and may, in fact, to create more problems than it solves. If they want to rest in the dark room, they sure can, uh, but often they don't need to do that for more than um, the first 24 to 48 hours. We want them up and about um, doing their activities of daily living as soon as tolerated. Uh, and one of the big changes in the new consensus guidelines is that we want them returning to symptom-limited activity as soon as tolerated. Um, so that means, you know, perhaps going out for little walks or getting up and moving in a very safe way as their symptoms begin to improve. We want to talk to them about returning to school and work when they're discharged from the emergency department. Don't recommend staying home from school until they're symptom-free. That creates more problems than it solves as well. Kids can return to school as they're able to tolerate as their symptoms are improving with adjustments in place, and I'll talk a little bit more about that uh, in a few minutes here. It's also important to talk about sleep hygiene measures. You know, these patients want to sleep uh, much more early after their injury, and a lot of times they're napping during the day, daytime naps, eventually can turn into nighttime sleep problems. So some counseling on sleep hygiene, resetting the sleep cycle, avoiding naps once they're a couple days post-injury can really be helpful. Um, one very useful tool that can help patients with management um, of concussion once they're discharged from the ED, uh, you can find on our website, um, centerforconcussion.com. It's center number four, concussion.com. We have a booklet called REAP, R-E-A-P. Um, which talks about how to manage a concussion within the first four weeks uh, the injury. It's really geared more towards pediatric patients, but adults have found it useful as well. And it talks about when to return to school and how to resume activities. Um, we're in the process of updating that based on the 2016 guidelines. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the role of exercise in the concussion recovery. This is a really important topic. Um, John Letty and his colleagues in Buffalo, as well as a number of other researchers, have um, done a lot of study on the role of exercise in recovery. 
um, we know from a number of studies that introducing um, physical exercise at a certain point in the recovery can actually benefit recovery. And we know from a number of other diagnoses um, like stroke, like um, back injury, that uh, inactivity is actually a risk factor for a delayed recovery. And we think that is true as well in concussion. The difficulty is that we don't really know the exact timing to begin exercise. We need more research there. It seems like there's a sweet spot. Some studies have shown us that if you start exercising too early, it can cause your symptoms to escalate and perhaps cause a prolonged recovery. If you keep a kid or an adult inactive for too long, that too can cause a prolonged recovery. We want kids beginning exercise as soon as their symptoms are beginning to improve, typically within the first one to two weeks post-injury, but we have to caution them that it has to be very safe exercise. It cannot be activities that risk re-injury, so this is not clearance to return to sport. It's a different concept. It's exercise for concussion rehabilitation, and typically we'll start with some walking. Uh, perhaps we'll have them use a stationary bike, treadmill, elliptical, if they have access to those types of things. Um, if they're in physical therapy for their rehabilitation, there is a test called a Buffalo Concussion Treadmill Test that the physical therapist can do to determine their exercise threshold and prescribe exercise for them. We want patients exercising at the sub-symptom threshold, so just enough to get their heart rate up, but not enough to cause significant escalation of their symptoms, and sometimes that's best done by uh, a physical therapist. Um, but it is good to advise um, patients that they should get moving uh, within a week of their injury in a very safe way and that they shouldn't just be laying, laying, laying around. Let's talk a little bit about the patient with a prolonged recovery who does not get better from a concussion. So it helps to talk about the definition of a prolonged recovery, and this was also new in the consensus statement. So in an adult, a prolonged recovery uh, or persistent symptoms for concussion are defined as more than 10 to 14 days of symptoms. In kids and teens, they take much longer to recover from a concussion on average. So persistent symptoms are defined as symptoms greater than four weeks. So if you have a patient that's coming back, an adolescent perhaps, who still is having symptoms two weeks post-injury, that is actually still within the average time frame of recovery and not necessarily alarming. Um, once they're in that uh, prolonged recovery phase, then um, referral to a multidisciplinary uh, team, a concussion specialty clinic may really benefit the recovery. Um, there are also uh, certain types of patients that may benefit from early referral to a concussion clinic. The dizzy patient especially, that is a patient that likely has some vestibular dysfunction that may benefit from rehab. Um, patients with risk factors for prolonged recovery, and I'll talk about that. What do we do when we see them in the concussion specialty clinic? So we are doing a detailed evaluation to look for oculomotor dysfunction. Those are eye-tracking, eye-movement difficulties. Vestibular dysfunction, we're looking for associated cervical strain, which often happens in conjunction with a concussion and often benefits from rehab. Are they having severe persistent headaches? Uh, is more detailed um, neuroimaging, such as an MRI indicated? We don't have great guidelines on who to get MRIs on. We rarely use them in the concussion clinic, but on certain occasions it might be indicated. Do we need medications to help manage headache? Not a lot of study on what medications might be helpful, but it's something um, that we can utilize if we need to. 
Sleep can play a huge role in a concussion recovery, and if we have somebody with significant sleep cycle disturbance, uh, then again, counseling on sleep hygiene, perhaps using some melatonin to help their sleep, and perhaps some more significant medications to help reinstitute regular sleep cycles might be helpful. We're also evaluating for psychological contributors that might uh, cause prolonged recovery. And we are doing orthostatic vital signs uh, as an evaluation of the autonomic nervous system. Some of these patients develop a dysautonomia, which can prolong their symptoms, and develop an orthostatic intolerance or a Frank Potts syndrome, um, and that's important to look for. We're often prescribing vestibular therapy. Now, vestibular therapy, I know some emergency medicine providers might not have a lot of familiarity with. Um, this is a specialty within the physical therapy world. Um, they are specifically trained on rehabilitating the vestibular and the oculomotor system, and this has been shown to be very helpful in a concussion recovery. We can't forget the next, a cervical manual physical therapy might be helpful. Um, if we have somebody with a complicated recovery, recovery with certain complications, we are enlisting the help of our uh, neurooptometry colleagues, sometimes our neurologists, sometimes our psychologists, uh, and of course our physical therapy colleagues are really essential in this recovery. We're also sometimes utilizing cardiology if we have dysautonomia, um, and perhaps endocrinology. On rare occasions, these patients might be at risk for endocrinopathies after their injury uh, because the pituitary gland might be vulnerable. We don't have a lot of data on who's at risk and what that might look like. All right, let's talk a little bit about who might be at risk for a prolonged recovery from a concussion. Um, now, when you're seeing these patients in the emergency department, it is absolutely impossible to predict how long they're going to take to recover. But there are some risk factors that might indicate a risk of prolonged recovery. It's important to note that loss of consciousness does not seem to predict a prolonged recovery. And I would say anecdotally, my experience in the concussion clinic is that kids who have loss of consciousness almost seem to have a better recovery uh, sometimes than those who don't, which is really counterintuitive. Um, dizziness, amnesia at the time of presentation, and very severe symptoms, so high numbers on that symptom scale. Um, those are patients who are at risk for a prolonged recovery and maybe benefit from an early referral to a concussion clinic um, and early involvement with vestibular therapy. Uh, we always say concussion hits you where you hurt. So anybody who had any kind of neuropsychiatric issues prior to concussion would be at risk for prolonged recovery. And that includes kids with ADHD, um, learning disability, uh, mental health issues, anxiety, depression. They may have a hard time recovering from concussion. And if you have a personal history of migraine or a family history of migraine, you tend to have a harder time recovering from a concussion. Um, prior concussion is also very important historically. If you've had multiple concussions, there is a trend that recovery becomes more difficult with each injury, and especially if the previous concussion was very recent, um, that is a risk factor for prolonged recovery. Um, let's talk a little bit more in detail about the process of return to school. I think this is actually important for the emergency medicine provider to have a little bit of familiarity with. Um, now, the ER really isn't a good place to talk about specifics when it comes to return to school. You're not going to be prescribing exactly what the teachers should do in the classroom to get that kid back in school. Um, but it's important to know that the return to school process needs to be individualized, and these kids do not need to be symptom-free before they return to school. 
school. Uh, usually within the first 48 to 72 hours after an injury, they can begin the transition back to school, but it's important that the school is aware they've had a concussion so that they can put adjustments in place, lighten the workload, perhaps shorten the school day, perhaps providing um, some breaks so that they can be in the school um, while they're recovering. Uh, keeping them out of school for a long time really can cause a lot of problems. It can cause social isolation, anxiety about missed schoolwork, and kids can develop school avoidance if they've missed a lot of school. There is a fantastic website called GetSchooledOnConcussion.com uh, that is um, developed by our psychologist in the clinic and one of her colleagues. It's really geared towards the um, school providers, so school nurses, teachers, athletic trainers in the school, and it gives them specifics on how to provide adjustments in the classroom. So that can be a good uh, resource to give parents so that they can have some idea of how to manage the concussion. All right, let's talk a little bit about return to sports. So, of course, uh, when a patient has a sports-related concussion, usually the first question is, when can I go back to football? Um, the criteria for clearing a patient from a concussion um, to return to sports includes being symptom-free from the concussion and off all medications used to treat those concussive symptoms. They need to have a normal physical exam, and that includes vestibular and oculomotor function testing, making sure there are no persistent vestibular oculomotor dysfunction. We need to have some sort of evidence of cognitive recovery. So in our clinic, we use a computer-based test called the IMPACT test. There are a number of different computer-based neuropsychiatric tests that can be used. Um, there are pros and cons. They're not perfect. They cannot be used in isolation. You have to look at all the other components of the concussion. And sometimes we're actually asking for feedback from the teachers in the school to tell us that the patient is cognitively recovered. So obviously clearance is a little bit of a complicated process, and that's why I personally think that the emergency department is not a good place to clear a concussion. Um, now we do have patients showing up maybe two weeks after their injury saying, I'm here for a concussion clearance, and typically we refer uh, those patients from the emergency department to their primary care provider or perhaps the specialty clinic um, for clearance from the concussion. It's also important to know about your local state legislation. So in the United States, now all 50 states have some sort of legislation for youth athletes to return to sport. The components of the um, legislation typically include some sort of education for stakeholders where coaches, um, perhaps parents, perhaps athletes need to be educated on the signs and symptoms of concussion so they know how to recognize it. Usually there's some sort of component that says an athlete needs to be removed from play if a concussion is suspected, and usually they require some sort of clearance before they can return to sport. Now, who can provide that clearance varies state by state, so it's important for you to know your own legislation. Um, and that is one of the reasons why patients may be showing up in the emergency department asking for clearance because uh, their coach is not going to take them back if they're doing things correctly before they have a note saying the concussion is cleared. Um, when you're seeing patients in the emergency department, you may get some questions about the long-term risks of concussion. Um, and this is a difficult discussion because we don't have a lot of great data to tell us um, who's at risk for these long-term complications. We talked a little bit about the risk of second impact syndrome. We don't really understand who's at risk for that entity. 
Um, it seems to be an adolescent and a young adult phenomena. does not seem there have been reported cases over the age of 25. Um, we know that adolescent brains are uniquely at risk for concussion and concussive complications, so that's an important discussion. We know that concussive injury can be cumulative. If you have multiple concussions, there is a risk that you don't go back to who you were after those concussions. Um, you can develop migraine headaches, you can develop chronic headaches, you can develop uh, cognitive decline, perhaps depression, perhaps anxiety. The difficulty is we don't really understand who is at risk for these complications, how many concussions you need to have to have these complications. It seems to vary individual um, from individual. And of course, there's been discussion about chronic traumatic encephalopathy, mostly with respect to retired uh, NFL football players. We don't have data to tell us who is at risk for CTE when it comes to youth concussion. We don't know how many concussions you get as a teenager. How does that play a role in your long-term neurocognitive or neuropsychiatric outcome? It's important to educate families that with multiple concussions, you do run the risk of persistent post-concussive symptoms, um, and that they need to have a conversation with perhaps their primary care provider or their specialty clinic uh, about when to retire from sport. That's a difficult conversation to have, and the emergency department is probably not the right place to do this, because you really need to have some rapport with the patient and the family to have this conversation. Um, there's no hard and fast rule about when to retire from sports. We look at the burden of concussion, and that includes how far apart the injuries were, how severe were the symptoms, how long did the recovery take. Um, we're certainly getting concerned when there are three or more concussions in a youth athlete, because from the limited data that we have, it does seem that three concussions uh, do increase your risk of perhaps more difficult recovery or prolonged um, injury. Uh, but we really individualize the decision when it comes to retiring these patients from sports. Um, so that's really the uh, kind of down and dirty of um, concussion in the emergency department. Uh, again, looking at those patients to see if they need neuroimaging. Once we've ruled out a severe intracranial injury, um, looking at uh, rest, antiemetics, um, pain management uh, acutely, and then counseling them on expected levels of activity, expected course of recovery, uh, the risks of returning to sport without clearance and assuring the concussion has resolved, and educating patients about the resources available for concussion recovery, uh, concussion specialty clinics, vestibular and manual physical therapy, and subspecialty care. I think those are all really important uh, things to address in the emergency department. So hopefully that was helpful to you as an emergency medicine provider. Thanks for listening. All right, so that wraps up this episode of Amplify. Thanks to Dr. Karolik for giving us some great information on concussion management. As always, additional materials are available on our website for emergency medicine practice subscribers, including the trauma extra supplement discussed in this episode and another extra issue focused on stroke, both exclusive to subscribers and in addition to the 12 regular issues received every year. These full-length extra articles give you the state-required CME you need in a mobile-friendly digital format with links to videos and other additional features. Definitely check them out. If you're not a subscriber, consider joining today. Find out more at ebmedicine.net slash subscribe. Again, ebmedicine.net slash subscribe. Get in-depth articles on hundreds of emergency medicine topics, concise summaries of the articles, calculators, risk scores, and CME credit, and lots and lots of extras. The address for CME credit for the concussion article is www.ebmedicine.net slash ex0919. Again, www.ebmedicine.net slash ex0919. 
So head over there to get your CME credit. And be sure to stop by EB Medicine's booth if you'll be at ASAP in Denver, booth number 315. Sign up for a chance to win a $500 Visa gift card. As a person who has won raffles all three times I've been to ASAP, I would say that this is definitely a low-hanging fruit. As someone who's lost innumerable ASAP raffles, even more than the three you've attended, if I were going this year, this would be a no-brainer entry. Who could say no to a chance to win $500 just for writing your name and learning more about evidence-based medicine at the same time? Be sure to also find us on iTunes and rate us or leave comments there. You can also email us directly at amplify at ebmedicine.net with any comments or suggestions. Talk to you all soon.